I'm kind of surprised. There seems to be a lot of college-age people here today, I guess. I, I thought the university's on break, fall break, right? But maybe you guys go somewhere else. Lindsay's not. Okay. Well, anyway, I'm glad you guys are here. Um, you know, we've been talking the last four weeks on on this crazy topic uh, that sounds boring until you really start paying attention to it. It's called We've called it either or. And... Uh, the uh, and I'm going to say something that's going to sound kind of crazy, but the the truth is I don't say things like this very often. Um, three weeks ago, Adam preached a sermon on Jesus that may very well be the best sermon I've ever heard in my life, and I I don't say that lightly. I've grown up in the church. I was the kid that when I drove around my delivery truck delivering pizzas. I was listening to sermons. I mean, I've always listened to sermons. I've always cared more about the word maybe than uh, than the singing in church. You know, most people get stuff out of worship. I've always got stuff out of sermons just the way I'm built. And uh, that sermon is incredible. It was three weeks ago. Uh, what's it called, Andrew? Or did he? Yeah, but the, the sermon on Jesus. Is it called both, Ann? On the audio archive. I don't remember the title either, but... It's the first one in the series, and if, if you missed it, I really do encourage you to go back and listen to it because it, it was incredibly powerful. It was so insightful, and it was all about who Jesus is. You'll walk away from that sermon with a, a far greater love for Jesus than what you walk to it. I guarantee it. I don't care who you are and how long you've walked with the Lord. There's so much good stuff in there. Anyway, this has been my favorite series that we've done. You know, we did a series on judges like forever. It went so long. Uh, and this series is so good, but it's so short. So we're going to try to wrangle Adam into doing some more down the road. Um, the reason it's so important for us, and I want us to really start thinking about this, is because we live in a culture that capitalizes on controversy. I mean, it is everywhere. In fact, you know, just uh, I guess the latest big thing is Miley Cyrus, which I, I'd never even thought of the name, you know, ever until the last two weeks. And the reason she's so... Uh, important now in our culture is because she's doing stuff that's just crazy. It's, it's controversial, you know. Uh, I guess she did some kind of thing at a music awards that got her, you know, some attention, and it was all staged and on purpose because she was going to put out a record, and then she created this music video that's absurd, and it's getting her all the publicity. And we live in a culture that capitalizes on controversy. And one of the ways it does that is it puts things in these neat little categories. It's either this... Or it's that. You're either this or you're that. And and if, if we don't watch ourselves, we buy into this. If really, it's a worldview. We buy into this worldview that says there is this separation between me and you, us and them, uh, this and that. And we, we begin to see the world through these ideas of this is better, that's bad. And uh, the first week, of course, we talked about Jesus and the incarnation. Now, the incarnation, I don't know how familiar you are with these words, but incarnation is basically the, the concept of God living as a man among us. Um, it's, it's when you, in, you embody something. And then uh, last week we talked on faith and wisdom. And today, uh, what we're going to be talking about, if, if we grew up in Protestant churches, this is something that, uh, that we've all been around, we've all been exposed to it, and probably been susceptible to and that is this concept of ministry, right? Full-time ministers, full-time workers. And you've got these neat little categories. You know, you're either a man of God or you're a housewife. Um, and I remember growing up, like anybody who, um, who began to actually interact with Jesus on their own, not just hang out with people who hung out with Jesus, but actually began to hang out with Jesus. You know, you hang out with Jesus for just a little bit, by the way, and you guys would agree with me. You, you can't help but fall in love with him, and it changes your life. Um, and it changes the way you approach things. And as you fall in love with him, you want to give him everything you've got. Now, if you've grown up in the Protestant church, and that, by the way, that's a good thing, right? But if you've grown up in the Protestant church, the way that ends up looking out is you've got to end up being a preacher, or you've got to marry a preacher, you know? Or... You've got to be a missionary or you marry a missionary. 
And so, you know, those aren't really things that we say, but it's kind of how we end up viewing the world. And we end up start we end up looking at these other things, these regular jobs that our parents all worked, as kind of like, yeah, whatever. And uh, those are the struggles that we that we that we face um, growing up in kind of the the Protestant church where we where we want to esteem uh, the ministry. Now, I, I want us to uh, to think about a couple of things. One is that unlike the animals, every human has this struggle of the internal, uh, the eternal and the temporary. And it really is a type of incarnation that within us that the eternal intersects with the temporary. And on the one hand, we want to be filled with the Spirit. And on the other hand, we want to be filled with Brother's Barbecue. And the truth is, we need both. And uh, there's this story, well, I mean, whatever. But you do. you got to eat. So you're going to have to do it. Uh, this, you know, when Jesus, right before he launches his ministry, you know what he does? He fasts for 40 days, and he does it alone. And if you ever spent, if you ever fasted for a long period of time, you know how miserable it gets. And if you ever spent a long time alone, you know how miserable it gets. And if you combine those two, it's just like, it's gut-wrenchingly, you know, you're going to lose your brain. And at the end of these 40 days, Satan comes to him in person. Right, Satan doesn't send one of his uh, little agents. He's going to do it himself. Uh, he comes to Jesus, and he tempts Jesus with, with these really, really interesting um, temptations. And uh, I, th- I think there's a lot there, and I don't know that I understand it all. But the first temptation he tempts Jesus to do, he says, If or since you're the Son of God, won't you turn these stones into bread? Now, of course, Jesus is starving. And obviously, in order for it to be a temptation, it means that Jesus considered it. He started thinking about it. And then Jesus says this thing to the devil. He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, most of us in the Protestant church, you know, we go, it's like a seesaw. We go to the one side, by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But the logic of Jesus and the logic of the writer of the Scripture in the Old Testament, where it comes from, necessitates that man also lives by bread. Otherwise, the verse wouldn't make any sense. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so what we want to do is we want to live a life that knows how to hold both of these that tend to have some tension and marry them together in this beautiful world called creation. Um, in the early church, there was a group, uh, there was a sect called the Gnostics. And uh, they were the first group that the church as a whole ever considered heretics. Now, I know we, you, you may have heard that word sometimes, and it's, it's actually kind of a serious word because it, it means that if you're a heretic or if you're considered heresy, not only are you what you believe and what you teach is not true, it's enough to disqualify you from salvation. So it's kind of a big deal. It would be like imagine uh, Adam and the elders getting together and saying, uh, you know, this little group over here in our home, home group church is no longer part of our church because of what they're teaching. They're now heresy. It'd be a big deal, right? It would, it would cause a huge uh, everyone would be talking about it. So this is what happened with the Gnostics. And you know what the Gnostics taught? You know what they were like, one of their fundamental teachings was? That Jesus was completely divine, but that he was a spirit who wore a body like you wear your jacket. That was kind of the main thing that the church said, and that's what made them heresy, heretics. And you can imagine, how, how do you treat your jacket? Wear it for an hour or two, and then you hang it up, and when it gets a little old, you throw it away, right? But the early church saw that this was a serious problem, and they said that stuff is heresy because Jesus didn't just wear a body. Jesus was a body. He was a man. And that's really important um, for us to understand that this, this tension lives in us, and it's going to find its way out in every way we see, including when it comes to our occupations. Now, um, I want to ask you a question. Um, 
Well, before I ask that, do you remember this passage in the Old Testament where Isaiah uh, has a vision and he goes to heaven? And he hears the, he hears the angels and, the, and these beautiful creatures who, you know, I don't even, he tries to describe them, whatever. Um, and they're singing this song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Do you remember the back half of that verse? And the whole earth is full of his glory. See, it's kind of like a seesaw, right? Same thing with the bread alone thing. It's this little seesaw thing that you, that you see all throughout creation, which is this amazing holiness of God and how wonderful his creation is. And it always affirms both. And we in our lives, you know, we're doing like this seesaw thing. And sometimes we'll go through periods of time where the Lord actually purposely has us going a little higher on one end. But then we're eventually going to balance back out and maybe go a little higher on the other end. But the idea is to keep that seesaw in, 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 in unison. So I wanted to ask you a question. Say a young person comes up to you and says, you know, Jesus has just wrecked my life. I love him with all my heart, and I'm trying to figure out what I need to do with my life. And uh, don't answer this question out loud. Should I, should I go to so-and-so school of ministry, or should I move across the world and be a missionary because I love Jesus so much, I want to give him everything I got, or should I go down to McDonald's and flip burgers? Now, what, what would you want to tell them? Now, it's kind of a trick question uh, for, for a couple of reasons. One is, you're not their Lord, and short of the Lord and Holy Spirit telling you what they should do, it probably would be best not to tell them what they should do. You should let the Holy Spirit do that. Uh, the second thing is, if you gravitate more towards one, then you're already kind of showing your bias. Because really, it's both. What should that young person do? Both. They really should. Uh, because God affirms both. Now, I want us to look at this passage here uh, that we're going to put up. And this is out of, if you've got a Bible and you like to turn to it, that's fine. Or if you just want to read along with us. This is out of Luke uh, chapter 5. And I'm going to read the whole thing. It says, One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of wherever, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. And he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put it out a little from shore. Then Jesus sat down and he taught the people from the boat. Now when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and we haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And when their partners came, they filled both boats so that they both began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and he said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had made. And so James and John and the sons of Zebedee and Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. And so they pulled their boats up on the shore and left everything and followed him. <clears throat> All right, you can put the scripture away for a little bit. So who followed Jesus? Who left everything and followed Jesus? Was it just Simon? Was it just James and John? Those last two verses, they <clears throat> that Simon and all his companions, including James and John, were all astounded. And then from then on, it uses the plural. And they left everything. That morning, it was actually every one of those guys. And here's the thing about following Jesus. I don't care what you do for a living or what, uh, what your plans are. 
If you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to leave everything. It's going to happen. There's no way to follow Jesus without leaving everything. It's impossible. And, and you see Jesus teaching, teaching this sort of thing at various points. And it's not that Jesus is mean and says, Hey, I want you to forget all about the things you've worked so hard for. I want you to forget about all the things that your hearts are dreaming on. It's not that. It's just that Jesus realizes that the journey is so difficult and the trouble and the pain that comes our way is so hard that unless we've left everything, we're, we're, we're not going to make it. We're not going to follow through with following him. Um, and I want to tell you a little bit, a little bit about my own story. When I was, uh, I, I grew up in an ex-Amish family. When I was just a kid, my dad met the Lord. My mom and dad both met the Lord. And they literally left everything they ever knew to follow Jesus. And uh, for, you know, in terms of like up close, it's probably the, the most radical change I've ever seen. Uh, not just change, but sacrifice. You've got to understand, they left, um, they left not just a lifetime, their own lifetime, but they, le- they left uh, generations of lifetimes when they left the Amish to follow Jesus. They left a way of life. And they were alone. There was nobody around to support them. And uh, my dad had been a super, super successful Amishman as far as that goes. Like he, This is 1983. He owned uh, like a 110-acre farm that was worth, at that time, about $120,000. And this is in 1983, so if you do the math, that's like nearly a million dollars now. And he had it paid for, right? And he had this booming business. And he he was so well-loved in the Amish community that they had uh, offered to make him bishop a couple of times. And the way the Amish do it is they do it by drawing straws. And the straw never got drawn for dad, so he never did become bishop. But he was in the running, you know. And so when he met the Lord and decided to leave, it was a huge, uh, he left everything, really. So that's kind of the context of the kind of family I grew up in. You know, we, ha- we always held our material possessions kind of loosely. Uh, it wasn't even anything we ever talked about. It was just the way we lived. And I used to think we were dirt poor because we just didn't have anything. I mean, I really did. I thought we were really poor. We drove the oldest cars. We lived in ratty houses. And I'm not saying that's a good thing, by the way, but that's just how we lived. And so that's the context I grew up in. And uh, I grew up in a home that really did love the Lord for all of our uh, turmoil and and weaknesses that we might have had. I I knew that my parents really loved Jesus and would do anything that they believed he asked them to do. And so, uh, but I grew up in in this like Southern Baptist church, which was a good thing, right? But there was a lot about the Holy Spirit and about the Lord that, that we were never given. And my life changed radically on the inside when I was about 16 years old. I was home alone. And my mom had left this, this book on, on the shelf by a guy named Oswald Chambers, who's like, I, th- I think there was like a devotional book by him or something. But this little book was really, really small. And it was called for the, If Thou Wilt Be Perfect. And I picked it up. And when I read the first little bit, it wasn't even written by Oswald Chambers. He was quoting this priest from uh, like the Dark Ages. And it was just like two or three sentences long. And he talked about how God is the source of all things. And, and in that moment, I was baptized with the Spirit because my, my heart was open to the beauty of God everywhere. It, was, it changed my life radically and it changed the way that I saw the Lord. It changed everything. And I remember for like two weeks after that experience, you know, I didn't tell anybody about it, but um, gosh, I just loved the Lord and I, and I loved life. And I knew that there was, there was so much more to who he is than, than, I, than I'd ever understood or even saw in, in maybe the people around me. And in that same time frame, I was, uh, I was in this honors English class at school by this amazing teacher who made us read these old dead white atheists like Hemingway and uh, Steinbeck and William Faulkner. I don't know if you guys ever read these guys. But this teacher was profoundly insightful and she would not spoon feed you. And she would ask you these really difficult questions. You know, here's a classroom full of 20 or 30 people and we were almost all of us Protestant, you know, kids raised in Protestant churches. And she would say, 
why do you believe in the virgin birth? And she wouldn't help us out at all. And so we would, uh, you know, people would kind of be afraid to answer. And then she would put all these questions to us. And, uh, you know, questions with the with uh, the existence of God and all these things. But anyway, so like, on the one hand, I had received this baptism of the Spirit. And on the other hand, I was in this classroom that was super challenging to me uh, by this teacher who I would have otherwise thought was kind of mean and rude because she kept forcing the, not forcing the issue, but she kept kind of like making us face up to maybe simplistic ways of, of believing things. Um, but she was so nice and so sweet and so kind that you couldn't really be mad at her for it. But anyway, those, that combination made me super, super hungry for the Lord. Because I really felt the tension of, of both knowing Jesus, having experienced him, but then having these crazy doubts. And then I, uh, I knew I wanted to, to love the Lord and follow him with all my heart. And then I watched this movie called The Mission. You guys ever seen that movie? I was like 16 or 17 when I first saw it. And it wrecked my life. I mean, it, it really wrecked it. Uh, I mean, it was from the Lord for me to watch it. But it was the first time that I'd ever uh, experienced the Holy Spirit in, in, a, in a, that kind of profound way. Because uh, I'll just tell you a little bit about the movie. It's about these two guys. One is a Jesuit priest who's laid his life down for Jesus and for people, and he's a missionary. And the other is this guy who's a, who's a slave trader. Uh, Robert De Niro's the slave trader. And through a series of events, Robert De Niro... Um, his character undergoes a conversion, finds Jesus. And by the way, this movie is like Hollywood and everything, but it's blatantly beautiful <laughs> about the Lord. And so like this guy finds Jesus and they, these two individuals lay their lives down for the Lord and, and for the people that they're serving. But there's this one scene in the middle of this movie where Jeremy Irons' character, who's the Jesuit priest, he's the first guy up in this like, this tribal area in South America. No one's been there. He doesn't even know what he's going to find or what to expect. All he's got with him is this like little backpack of clothes and this musical instrument. And he gets surrounded by these natives who have their bows and arrows and spears and are, are ready to attack. And so he sits down on this rock and begins to play this song. And as he plays this song, uh, the natives come in a little closer and a little closer and they begin to listen and they begin to lay down their bows and arrows and they're just paying attention to the song. And, of course, one of the older guys comes up, breaks the it's, it's an oboe, and he breaks the oboe, throws it down, says some things in his language, which, you know, in this movie, they don't even interpret the, you don't even know what the people are saying, right? It's not spoon-feeding anything. You just kind of watch it. Um, and so they have this exchange in this language that you don't understand. But then a young man walks up and puts the oboe back together for the guy, and uh, they exchange a few words. And then he takes him by the hand and he leads him into their, their campsite. So that was this beautiful little scene. Um, and when I watched this movie as a 16, 17-year-old, I knew that what I wanted to do with my life was serve Jesus and tell people about him. Uh, this movie, more than anything I'd ever seen at that point, show, uh, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, I really love people. I really, really love people. It's, it's what I'm about. And so uh, that movie touched me so deeply that the rest, every decision I made after that um, was about that sort of thing. It was like, God, I want to serve you. And I want to do what you want me to do. Um, so when I went to college, I chose my majors based on that experience. You know, I, I decided to be, to be an English major because I wanted to be able to read stories and cultures that are from all over the world. And I also became a biblical studies minor because I wanted to know the truth and I wanted to make sure that I was on the way to the truth. Um, and like most freshmen in college, I became a complete bozo. And as a sophomore too. I, um, <laughs> uh, junior, you start waking up a little bit, you know. <laughs> it's kind of true. So like, uh, when I, as a sophomore, you know, and I've got this need for closure, and, and some people have more of a need for closure than others, and some people can live intentional a little bit easier than others. And 
and I've got this, this desperate need for closure that I always, you know, I struggle with these answers and questions and so on. So as a sophomore in college, I became what, what you call a Calvinist. And this is when Campbell's University had no Calvinists at all. I was it. I'm serious. I was it. So, like, I decided I was going to be a Calvinist because at least everything was answered and pat and simple that way. I became an evangelical Calvinist. You know, I'm trying to, like, convert all my friends to it. And I got all these scripture verses. And, and I was also in charge of, at that time, it was BSU, Baptist Student Union. Now it's, what is it, Christian Ministries or BCM? I was in charge of their meetings, for crying out loud. I don't know why they put me in charge of their meetings. So, like, at the beginning of the year, we had, like, 150 people coming, right? Within like six months, we had like 10. I mean, I completely train wrecked that place <laughs> so bad that the council ambushed me one day at one of the council meetings and they took all of my powers away from me <laughs> and they distributed it to all of their other people, which was well needed. Um, but at least I was sincere, you know. I mean, I, I was whatever. I was sincere. I, I meant I thought it was the right thing. I thought I was doing the right thing. So, like, after all that happened, it was obviously painful. And I began to wake up and saying, you know, there's something wrong here. I'm trying to follow Jesus. I want to serve him. I want to tell people about the truth. And I was in this, this wonderful class called the Studies in the Gospels that John Hurchin taught. And it was the, a look at the Synoptic Gospels. And as I worked my way through that, you know, all my, all my little pet theology just couldn't hold water anymore because there were so many complexities in, in the synoptic gospels where, you know, one synoptic, I don't want to get into it, but it's like you can't have a simplistic worldview uh, of the inspiration of scripture. And when you read the synoptic gospels all side by side and begin to see how each one of them describes a certain event, because some of it just doesn't quite fit real nicely or neatly. And so that began to kind of challenge my, my way of thinking. And the other thing was, as I was reading through the synoptic gospels, I realized that I was the Pharisee, you know, that that was me, that I had looked to the scriptures for salvation, but that the scriptures pointed to Jesus and and not to themselves. And so uh, I remember one night going to sleep and, uh, you know, I was really brokenhearted. This is that same time frame and I'm going to sleep and I'm, you know, almost crying myself to sleep. And I'm like, Jesus, knowing that I was a Pharisee, here, here these guys were who had spent their whole life memorizing and knowing the Bible. And, you know, that was me. Like, I had so many passages memorized and all that. And I'm like, and yet when you stood in front of them, they didn't have a clue who they were talking to. And as loud as the Lord's ever spoken to me, because I said, I said to the Lord, if you were here, would I even know you? And he's never spoken louder to me. He said, you would know me. And all that stuff broke off of me. And the next morning I woke up a new man again. And it was shortly after that that I started coming to the vineyard. Um, and just so you know, like early on after I graduated college, uh, I lived with... Uh, Bobby and Ann, and one afternoon in their basement, the Holy Spirit came to me again, and uh, he told me, I love people, and that's what I want you to do with your life. Now, I'm not saying that I'm the biggest lover of people. I'm not, I just so, if those who know me, I'm not claiming that, <laughs> all right? I want to love them, um, but, you know, again, Jesus told me that, and I was just... Again, I was like, okay, Jesus, whatever you want. So like that week, I, you know, Ray Hollenbach was pastor at that time. I told Ray, I said, Ray, I'm supposed to be a missionary. You know, here I have like the, the movie The Mission, which by the way, that movie was so important to me. You know, in my home, like I told you, we didn't buy stuff. We, we had the same stuff 10 years later that we'd had. I mean, I'm serious. You're thinking I'm joking. It's not true. I mean, it's, I'm not joking. From one decade to the next, everything was the same. Because we didn't buy stuff. And so, like, uh, I went out and bought the mission with my own money and made all my family watch it because I loved it so much. I bought the, the record, right? 
which, which had that song where that missionary is playing that beautiful little tune on, on the river called uh, Gabriel, who was the Jesuit priest, Gabriel's oboe. Uh, so I, I knew this record super well. I listened to it a billion times. I used to play my violin with it and play the piano with it. And, like, I would put – this is, you know, just like a kid. I would put, put it on the record player and play it, and then I would play along. <laughs> anyway, it meant a lot to me. So, you know, with that on one side and then with, this, with, with this, these other experiences with the Lord just really interacting with me on the other side, I told Ray Hollenbach, man, I'm supposed to be a missionary. That's what I'm going to do with my life. And Ray was like, okay, let's take six months and pray about it and, and see, see what that means. Of course, you know, at that time I'm thinking, six months? What's wrong with this guy? That's like forever. Now I'm looking back and saying, that's kind of short. And uh, actually the thought I had in my head at that time was like, this guy don't believe me. He thinks I'm making it up. I didn't tell him that. That's what I thought. And so we spent, uh, it was actually way longer than six months, we spent the next few years trying to figure out what that meant for me. And during that time, I went on short-term trips to Peru. I went to the Middle East. I went to Lebanon. I went to Israel and spent some time in the Gaza Strip. I was even in the Gaza Strip when Israel came and blew up a bomb, like a blew up a missile factory. Like, I mean, right down the road, it woke us up. Like, the, the, our whole building was rattling. And we woke out of bed, and we all ran outside, and we, we see a helicopter firing these missiles into this building, and it's exploding. <laughs> anyway, Whatever. So, uh, so the whole time I'm trying to figure out where the Lord wants me. And so eventually I, uh, I really believe the Lord wants me in Peru. And so uh, the church here and all these wonderful people were so sweet. They supported me. And by the way, you know, I had, I had to raise money. And just so you know... Um, I would I would rather work and make my own money than to raise money. I mean, it's kind of humiliating. But anyway, sometimes sometimes you're in that situation and you got to do it. But anyway, so so I was supported, and um, you know couldn't get a visa to work in Peru. There's no way in the world I was going to support myself down there because they the, the government wouldn't let you work. So I had to be I had to be funded, and uh, I, I spent some time there. And I'll tell you more about that. But I want us to go back to this passage. And let me look and see what our time is here. Yeah, we've got some time. I want us to go back to this passage, and we're going to work through it. Let's start with the uh, with in the beginning here. So again, one day, as Jesus was standing by the lake, uh, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. And he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. Now here we already have three players in this. We have Jesus. We got a crowd. And then we got these fishermen. Now, first of all, the crowd uh, was probably a few hundred strong, right? If you're just this many people, I could take this mic out and, and, and raise my voice enough where you guys could all hear me. So obviously the crowd was getting so big that Jesus uh, knew that it, people were having trouble hearing him. And he sees over here um, by the lake that there's, uh, there's a couple boats. And if you know anything about the way water and, and, and dynamics work, you put a boat... You ever been out fishing and you can hear what the guy like 300 yards over is saying to his buddy, pass me a beer? You're like, yeah, pass me one too. <laughs> it's because the uh, sound travels over water so, so well. So Jesus is like, okay, we got so many people here and they can't hear me. So I'm going to go out in the water and I'm going to talk to him. Now, so you've got your conference junkies here who are following Jesus by the hundreds. And then you got these guys who are just doing their job. Right? Now, who do you think Jesus is going to pick? I mean, you know the story. But who would you naturally think Jesus is going to pick to be his apostle? The conference junkie? Or the guy that's working his butt off? Not even going to the conference. Right? He doesn't have time to go to the conference. He's got, he's got a business to run. Uh, he's got people he's got to pay. So that's where we are for now. And uh, and it says, so he got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon. And he asked him to put it a little out from shore. And then he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. 
And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and I haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. So the first thing that I want us to think about here is that when Jesus is done teaching, all right, now, now you know that while these guys are wash, washing their nets, right? Now, first of all, who wants to wash your nets? But by the time you're done washing your nets, who wants to have to wash them again? I mean, seriously, it's like the Monday part of the job. You don't want to have to do it again. So the first thing Jesus does to Simon here, uh, you know, what would you do if you were done teaching a conference and you got the you got the construction guy outside, you know, working on the building, on the corner of the building or something, right? You're, you're here teaching this conference. If I'm going to get that construction guy to help me out, I'm going to be like, hey, pray, come here and pray for these sick people. Or come here and do this miracle. Or, you know, or I might even ask him, hey, what do, you, what do you think about what I said? But what does Jesus do? He says, go out and fish some more. So the first thing you see Jesus doing is, is uh, and it's kind of hidden, but... He affirms Peter's occupation. He basically says, Peter, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. In fact, go do it again. Now, I really like this response with Peter because, you know, Peter's going to give his opinion, but then he'll still go kind of do it, you know. Uh, But I want to say this, you know, Peter addresses the Lord as master. Now, you know, let's take off the Sunday school glasses. As far as we know, at least in Luke, this is the first time Jesus and and Simon have ever talked. Now, there's some discussion about whether or not maybe they'd they'd crossed paths before, and, and, and that's a possibility. But at least as far as we're aware of at this point, this is the first time they've ever talked. So at some point when Jesus is teaching, you know, Peter does show respect to Jesus and says, you know, calls him master. And then finishes up by saying, well, you know, first of all, I know better. This is my job. You're not the fisherman. You're the rabbi. Uh, but because you asked me to do it, I'm, I'm willing to do it. And there's this uh, Dallas Willard is this gentleman who uh, who's really had a, a tremendous influence on, on the American church in such a good way. Uh, he's passed away now just recently. But one of his main points uh, for American believers was that Jesus is better at your job than you are. And he, he meant it, actually. Uh, he, Dallas Willard said that so many times we fall into this trap where we think, yeah, Jesus is, is good with the heart stuff, right? Teaching me how to forgive, maybe not sin so much. But when it comes to plumbing, what does Jesus know? Now, we may not actually think that out loud, but we kind of live it if we don't really ever invite the Lord into our actual jobs, right? So here's the thing. Simon's like, all right, I'll play along. So he sends his workers out there, and uh, let's just go ahead and read it. Um, so, so when they had done so, they caught such a huge number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. So here's the thing about Jesus' vision for your job. Whatever you're doing currently won't contain it. Right? The nets and the boats you got right now probably won't hold it. That's one of the ways you know, actually, that you're following Jesus is that you're always having to expand your container. If the container that you've been using for the last 10 years keeps working for you, then maybe maybe you're not expanding enough, right? And the thing with Jesus is Jesus uh, Jesus does actually know our jobs better than we do. And I, I, you guys, some of you all remember Jerry Bennett, who uh, helped start Camelsville Industries here in town. Um, Jerry and I became friends when I was trying to become a missionary. And uh, Jerry was super sweet and encouraging to me. But I remember this one thing he told me. He had been in this meeting with Campbellsville University and Campbellsville Industries, and I don't know, they were doing, they were pairing some kind of business and school thing together. And they were strategizing. 
And he'd come up with this idea, and Jerry said, yeah, it was so interesting. You know, I was like, while we were thinking there, we're sitting around, and I said, in my heart, I said, Jesus, we need some help here. We don't know what, what to do. He goes, then right away, the Lord tells me this little idea. And he goes, and so I say the idea, the idea out loud, and everybody's like, oh, my gosh, that's amazing. How do you come up with these ideas? And Jerry was like, you know, it's just the Lord told me. Uh, it really is something that's important for us to not separate ministry from work, but to realize that Jesus really, really is in both. And that he really is master of fishing as much as he is master of your heart or your spirit. And that if you need a good idea for your job or your business or whatever it is you're doing or for your employer, the Lord can give that. He's more than able to do that. Um, and you'll see it when your nets start breaking because you know that all of a sudden uh, what you've been preparing for isn't, uh, it's not enough. Your preparation alone is not enough. Now, Simon's response when he sees this amazing stuff happen around his, you know, he'd been working all night long and not got anything. Um, he says, you know what, Jesus? I'm, I'm too sinful. Get away from me. So Simon's response is a lot like our own. It's retreat. And it doesn't come from a bad place, by the way. It just comes from a lack of revelation. But, uh, but his, his, his response is to retreat. And, of course, Jesus' response is promotion. It is true at the end of the day that Jesus cares more about people than he does fish. I think we all agree with that. But he also cares about fish. And that's the stuff we forget. There's this, there's this little passage I want us to look at. It's in, it's in Matthew um, 6. And I want us to read through this. <clears throat> and there's stuff uh, in the in-betweens here that we want to get. Says, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you're going to wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap, store away into barns, and yet your Heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They don't labor or spin. And yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? We'll stop there. Um, <clears throat> so in this passage, Jesus is making a case for trusting God. And he does it in this really interesting way. He talks about how birds don't build barns and flowers don't go out shopping or buying clothes, right? And then the Lord says that God is the one that takes care, our Father is the one that takes care of the birds and the one that takes care of the grass. Now let me ask you this. When God is out taking care of birds and grass, is it beneath him? Is he wasting his time? So the guys that we hire to come mow our yards, are they wasting their time? Right? They're mowing the grass that God clothes. And when God was uh, creating the world, you know, in Genesis, we have this wonderful poem of six days. On day one, was he doing something less holy than he was on day three? Or on day two, was it a little less holier than day five? Or was it all holy? So after I went to Peru, while I was down there, I saw some really neat things. And it was great. Um, I'll just tell you one story. I was supposed to be teaching, uh, I was working with this church, Santa Anita in Peru, and they wanted me to teach on um, on healing. And... Uh, so while riding in the bus, you know, like I, I would always ride a bus. You'd like pay this 30-cent toll to go anywhere you wanted to go. 
And I was asking the Holy Spirit, Lord, I need words of knowledge. I don't, I don't want to just teach on healing. I want to do it. And the Lord gave me like four words of knowledge. And when I get, and I was expecting like 20 or 30 people, you know, because they had like a lot, the, they were like bringing all sorts of people. Anyway, when I got there, there was only four people. And if you've ever asked for words of knowledge, you know, one, that, one of your like ace in the holes is like, ah, there's enough people around. Surely somebody's going to have it. You know? <laughs> no one admits that, but that's kind of what they're thinking. So here I got these four people. And I've got four words of knowledge, and they're like super specific. I'm like, darn it. I'm going to look like an idiot. I'm going to teach on healing, and I'm going to give these words, and they're going to be awful. So I teach on healing, and the whole time I'm just like, whatever, you know, I'm just going to do it. If I look like an idiot, I look like an idiot. And I even put that in my teaching, you know. Sometimes you look like an idiot. So I set myself up to look like an idiot. (laughs) And then I give these four words, and they're like, every one of them are like super precise, and each person had a word. And we all prayed for them, and like everybody got healed. It was crazy. And then I also made like some really stupid mistakes. Like I was single. I was single at the time. And uh, there was a, anyway, I, there was this girl that I took out on a date once, whatever. And, and I was like, yeah, I'm not interested in her. But I ended up kissing her. And, which is whatever now, it doesn't matter. But at that time, I took it like super, super serious. Like, man, I mean, I stressed out about it. I'm calling up Ray Hollenbach. And the first thing I say to him you know, this is from Peru. I'm like, Ray, I really screwed up. I've really messed it up. You guys have sent me down here. You've given me your money. You've trusted me. And and Ray's like, well, whatever it is, we can work through it. And I'm like, yeah, I kissed this girl. And I'm sure Ray's thinking, oh, my gosh, this guy's crazy. <laughs> and then I like, I'm so, you know, I feel so guilty about it. I go to the pastors of the church, which is a husband and wife. <laughs> and when I'm telling them about it, I'm like, yeah, I kissed this girl, but I didn't use a tongue. I mean, that's, and I can only imagine how ridiculous that sounded coming like through this crazy accent. And they're thinking this 25-year-old gringo who's supposed to be doing missions down here, you know, saving the world. Anyway, whatever. I was weighing over my head. So, uh, so I start dating my beautiful wife. She comes down, um. She comes down on a missions trip, and, and we'd already been friends. I actually really, really liked Tiffany before I ever went to Peru. But I was just trying to follow Jesus, you know. So she comes down on a missions trip, and uh, when, we, when I, I started liking her again, and then when, when I went home for Christmas, that's when, uh, when we started dating. And, of course, that changed everything. And then within, like, six months, I'm back home. And we get married, and we're doing our thing. And Tiffany and I, before we got married, you know, we talked about whether our life is going to look like missions or not. And Tiffany's like, yeah, I'm willing to do it. I don't want to, but I'm willing to do it if that's really what the Lord wants. And I'm like, well, I'm willing to do the American dream, but I don't want to. But if that's what the Lord wants, whatever, you know. So we get married, and uh, we're trying to figure out what we're going to do with our life. And through a series of events, and it was kind of a six-month process, um, we decided that I was going to go to chiropractic school. And for the longest time, we kind of kept it real private. Um, In fact, we hadn't told anybody when we had this girl over to eat. And uh, as we were sharing, yeah, there's some new stuff on the horizon. We think, you know, things are going to look different. She gets this picture of a school and then a picture of a chiropractor, which really was confirmation for us. And so I went off to chiropractic school. And uh, on our graduation, I, I was valedictorian, so I had to speak on our graduation. It was much better than today, by the way. <laughs> it really was. So, like, um, I'm, you know, I'm getting ready to speak and, you know, put in this four years of whatever, you know, just studying through the night kind of stuff, just silly. Um, and there's a group, you know, we're all friends. We're, there's 30 or 40 of us, and we're real, real tight, and we're ready to graduate. And it's right before I'm getting ready to speak, they had this thing on the little program that said special music, you know, which I was expecting, one of those weird special musics. This guy gets up, and he sits down at the piano and begins to play this song. And 
It was the song from the mission. And I, I hadn't heard that song any ever, ever anywhere ever. It's not a song you hear. He was he was playing uh, Gabriel's oboe, which is the song that the guys played in the river. So I knew it right away. And it was the Holy Spirit basically saying, you're stepping into your mission. And here's the thing that we really want to do. And it's important that we do it for our life. It's important we do it for our kids, our grandkids, for our friends. Is to see that our occupations are holy. God desperately loves the world. People and birds and grass. And when Jesus died, he rescued not just souls. He rescued everything. And when we get up in the mornings and we go to our jobs, we are putting our hands to glory. Because the whole earth is filled with his glory. And then I'll say one last thing and we'll close. Every time Jesus approaches us, like he did with Peter, there'll be a change of life. And he may approach one of us one day, and you really will end up in Africa. And that's okay. Or he may approach you, and you end up working a nine-to-five job. And that's just as good. Because what makes an occupation holy is not the place or even the theme, but it's the person that you're with, who's Jesus. And with that, we'll close. Um, I wanted our ministry team to come up. And I know I rambled a little bit, but if, especially with our young people, where we struggle so much with these sort of things, if any of us are struggling with this concept of, oh, the only way that I can be in God's will is if I go live this crazy sacrificial life. Uh, If you've ever struggled with that and you want it broken off, that's fine. There's no shame in that. You know, get some prayer today. Or if you just want to reemphasize and maybe receive again the revelation from the Spirit that what you're doing tomorrow morning is holy and it's gloriously so, uh, get prayer. Father, we thank you so much for everything you've made. From the littlest thing, like grass, to beautiful human beings. And uh, we thank you so much that we get to to experience life and creation. And we ask, um, I, I ask for each person here, Father, that we would have a renewed sense that we are living holy lives in our occupation with Jesus. We pray this in his name, amen. All right, you guys are free to go.